Standing, and we'll turn to Matthew chapter 28 uh, for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Matthew 28, beginning of verse 18 this morning. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray again. Our Lord and our God, we pray that by Your Spirit You would open our eyes, our ears, our hearts to see these wonderful truths our Savior has given to us, and to obey them, and therefore to glorify You. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So what if someone were to ask you, what is the church to be about? What is the purpose of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? What role does the church have in society? wonder what you would say. Maybe you would say, well, it's to worship God. And I would wholeheartedly agree with that. I think that is biblical. Jesus talked about with the woman at the well that God is seeking such who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And as 1 Peter 2 tells us, that's One of the reasons, if not the main reason, why we've been redeemed. In order to sing His praises, to proclaim the praises of God, to worship Him. And uh, it is our practice to preach through books of the Bible, through Paul's epistles, Old Testament books, and so forth. And we finished Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, not long ago. And so before we jump into John's Gospel, we're simply looking at the Great Commission. Uh, I think this is something we should do uh, from time to time, is to consider, are we on track? Do we need course correction? And uh, we're kind of getting the aerial big picture view of what it is that we are to be about as a church, a local expression of the church of Jesus Christ. And so last time we began looking there, verse 18, where we have the basis or the foundation for the mission that Christ gives to us. And that is His Lordship. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so then in verse 19, He gives us that mission, our task. What it is we're to be about as a church of Christ. And so we'll consider that this morning. And as we look at that, we'll have two headings. The task of our mission and then the method. Of the mission. And so this is the, the how and the what, or the what and the how. What are we to be doing? How are we to be doing? And that's what our Savior gives in this text. And so, first of all, with verse 19, we'll talk about the task of our mission, what it is that we're to be about, what we are to be doing as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, again, remember the basis. He's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And so verse 19 says, go therefore. His concern, his desire, his will is to make his authority known and felt on the earth. 
by means of his people. So he says, go therefore and make disciples. So we need a little bit of an English lesson, a little bit of a Greek lesson this morning. If you look there at verse 19, he says, go therefore and make disciples. So make disciples really is one Greek word. It's an imperative. It's the command. That is what we are to do. And then you see um, the participles there, the words ending in ing, baptizing and teaching, verse 20. And even before that, at verse 9, there's the word go. It's also in the Greek participle. But these also have a command force to them, an imperative force to them. And it's because of this. Let's say um, I told you that uh, my wife asked me to please go to the store and uh, pick up some milk. So my wife respectfully asked me to go pick up some milk. That's the command, if you want to say it that way. That's the request. And so I tell you, well, the other day I went to the store sporting a new Mustang. And so how did I go to the store? Sporting a new Mustang. And so, if you can understand that a little bit, I don't have a new Mustang, by the way. Uh, but it says there, make disciples. So how do you make disciples? By going, baptizing, and teaching. That's the sense of what the Savior says here. Well, let's talk about the task first, because that is the main thing. He says, make disciples. So what does it mean to make a disciple? What is a disciple? Well, the the noun form of this word is, um, in the Greek there, it is mathetes, and it means to follow, to be a committed student, or learner. And so we are to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember in the Gospels, Jesus went to uh, his first disciples, who would be his apostles, and he said, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. And so he called them to himself to take up uh, his purpose, his way of thinking, his worldview, his calling, and to follow him. And they dropped their nets, they left their nets, their livelihood, and followed him. And so when Jesus goes out into his ministry, or performing his earthly ministry, he calls people to himself. <clears throat> he calls them to to abandon their former way of life, their sinful way of life, to repent and to come and follow Him, to take His yoke upon them. And so we read in the New Testament and in the book of Acts especially, the apostles, they go out, they're making disciples, and they say, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so that's the message of calling others to be disciples. It is to be a lifelong student of Christ, to follow Him, to come to Him in repentance and faith, receiving Him as He is offered in the Gospel. It is a life of repentance, turning from our sins, following Him again and again and again. And uh, if you've ever been in the school of Christ, you know that that is a lifelong pursuit. Even trials come our way. And the Lord uses trials in our lives to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen that in Romans chapter 8, remember? Paul says, all things work together for good to them that are called, those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. 
And that good is to make us, to mold us and shape us to be more like Jesus Christ. And so that's what it means in a nutshell to be a disciple. And so, as we're to do that, he tells us the subjects of this command, who it is that we are to make his disciples, in verse 19, make disciples of all the nations. And so that word is ethne in the Greek. We get the word ethnic from that. It's often translated nations or Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. And so God had already come to his Jewish people. John 1 says he came into his own. His own received them not, received him not, Jesus not. They didn't receive him. So the gospel is now to go to all nations. And we've looked at that, remember, in Romans 9 through 11. We are hopeful one day that a majority of the Jewish people will repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. According to Romans 11, that's my understanding of it. But for now, the church is to be about making disciples of all the nations. We don't neglect the Jewish people, but it's to branch out all ethnicities. And so that's who are to be made his disciples. And as we think about that, this is connected to God's covenant with Abraham. And I want us to understand that as we see what Christ is doing. To see the unity of the Bible, there is discontinuity. We don't perform the Old Testament ceremonial sacrifices and so forth. But the gospel was there at times in seed form in the Old Testament. If you don't believe me, go read Galatians 3 sometimes in verse 8. Because Paul says that God preached the gospel to Abraham. And in Romans 4, Paul says that Abraham is an example for a Christian. For Abraham believed the promise and it was credited to him for righteousness. In other words, we are justified by faith. We are justified by having faith or belief in the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in Genesis 17, where God gives the sign of the covenant under the Old Testament to Abraham, circumcision, God said this in verse 4, You, Abraham, shall be father a father of many nations. I have made you father of many nations. So it makes this promise, you will be the father of many nations, not just your own people, and the Jewish people. Then he says, I have made you father of many nations. Again, that's sort of the prophetic past. It's so certain that it will happen, God put it in the past tense. Or either in his decree, it's settled and it's going to work itself out in space and time. And so that's what God says there in Genesis 17. In John chapter 8, Jesus makes it clear. Remember, there's this discussion between the Pharisees and Jesus. They didn't believe Jesus. And uh, they, the Pharisees, they were self-righteous. They thought they were entering the kingdom of God simply because of their church membership. Because they were physical sons of Abraham. And they say, we're sons of Abraham. And Jesus says, no, no, if you truly were a son of Abraham, you would believe in me. And so in John 8, Jesus makes it clear that to be a true child of Abraham uh, is to have the faith of Abraham. And to have the faith of Abraham is to have Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as the object of that faith. So if you're a true child of Abraham, you believe in Jesus. You're a spiritual child of Abraham. Jesus makes that clear. 
And so in our text there, if you look at verse 19, this is the way it goes in the original. Make them disciples all the nations. And so that is the great work of the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus does not lead us to heaven as soon as we are converted and become a Christian. He leaves us on this earth to worship Him, no doubt, as God's people, to fellowship with God's people. But He's given us, as a church, a mission, a task. It's to make the nations His disciples. And that will be the mission of the church until He comes back. And there's a little side note here I want to bring up. You need to think about what you do here at Providence or wherever else the Lord moves you over time, whatever church you serve, you need to think about your service as a legacy. We are handing down something. Is it good or bad? And as a spiritual people, as the Christian church, we've been handed something down to us, the church of Jesus Christ. We have spiritual forefathers and foremothers. I mean, just think about some of our spiritual forefathers. Think about the covenanters in Scotland, what they risked in order to say that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, and we must worship Him as He's commanded in His Word. They were in prison. Some of them were drowned. Women, young ladies, were drowned in the ocean. Just read Fair Sunshine, that book, and you'll see. And so we we have this heritage handed down to us. Now we don't hang on to the things that are unbiblical. We hang on to the things that are biblical, as Paul says in Thessalonians, that which is apostolic tradition. And so the church's mission is to make disciples. It's not merely evangelism or foreign missions. How many of you have heard someone preach on this text and say, you must be a foreign missionary? Or something to that effect. Okay, maybe you haven't been to the same church as I've been. But that's what I heard a lot growing up. And uh, in fact, I remember one time when Russia opened up, uh, back in the early 90s, I think it was, uh, this one man came and he says, you know, he basically implied, if you don't go to Russia, you're in sin. Well, that's not what we should walk away with from this text. It does include, the Great Commission, as we call it, it does include evangelism. And it does include foreign missions. Think about the logic, though, if if everyone became a foreign missionary. We'd all be moving everywhere. Who would we be discipling? It would be kind of interesting. But the point is, um, that's not the only application of this text. Now, that being said, let me stop and ask you this. Is God calling you to foreign missions? If you look on the back of our bulletin sometime, you'll see some of our foreign missionaries within the OPC. Some of those are shared missionaries. Some of those serve the PCA and the OPC. And some of those people are getting pretty old. And somebody's going to have to take their place. And so could God be calling you to foreign missions? Do you have a certain burden for certain people that they know the gospel? And by the way, some of those people are just husband and wife. One's a doctor. And he's part of a mission team. And so he and his wife started a family. thinking think Uganda. And uh, he serves the Lord as a medical doctor and missionary. And so the, the mission of the church is not merely evangelism. It is included. It's not merely foreign missions. That's part of it. But also, as we will see, if you look at verse 20... It includes teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. 
And so it's building up the body of Christ. It's going out, it's telling the gospel, it's preaching the gospel, calling people to put their faith in Jesus Christ, to repent of their sins. It is that. But those who come inside the church, they too are included as the recipients of this great commission, the command. We are to teach those who come in to observe all that Christ has commanded. And so it's both. Our own confession of faith in the first chapter says that the great work of the church, or elsewhere, it says the great work of the church is to gather and perfect the saints, to gather them in, to cast the net, the net, as Jesus did and taught his disciples, to gather in all sorts of fish. And when they come in, we perfect them. And that doesn't mean we make them smell good and look pretty and act prim and proper and have good etiquette. Although I believe good etiquette is Christian etiquette. What it means is we perfect them, meaning in the true sense of perfect, they are brought to Christian maturity. Ephesians 4 talks about that. We have gifts that have been given to us by Christ, to the church, pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the work of ministry. It's for the saints, for the equipping of the work of ministry. And so we are to learn everything and to follow and obey everything that Christ has taught His church. So that's it in a nutshell. That's the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations. Whether it's across the street or around the world, that's what we do. And this is based on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We are to make disciples from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And so then, how do we do this? That's the question. Well, He answers that for us, doesn't He? Let's talk a minute about the method of our mission, the how. Again, verse 19, there's the word go or going. Verse 19, baptizing. Verse 20, teaching. So going. Um, Now, if his apostles here would have just stayed in Jerusalem, it would have been pretty difficult to make disciples of all the nations. It's pretty clear that they were to go. They were to be dispersed, dispensed as they were throughout the earth. And so we see that in the book of Acts. Luke records the early church, the early apostolic church and its activities, its missionary endeavors. And we've seen that with the Apostle Paul. It's amazing how many miles he covered on foot in the life of his own ministry. But not all are called to foreign missions. We've said that. And also, if you note here, uh, we see the emphasis on the Christian ministry because he talks about teaching and he talks about baptism. We talk about word and what? Sacrament. A word and sacrament, a means of grace ministry. Christ has given those to the church. And as we study the scriptures, we find officially for a man to preach, he must be ordained by the church. In order for that man to administer baptism in the Lord's Supper, he must be ordained by the church. Lawfully ordained, we say. And so not everyone will go in an official capacity. However, the sense for most of us will be, as you go, make disciples. That will be the sense for most of us. And as a church collectively, we together baptize as it were when there is a baptism and when there is preaching and so forth 
So going is part of this. Also, if you note there, baptizing. Uh, this, of course, is one of the two sacraments, the holy ordinances that Christ has given to His church. And uh, we baptize those who make that profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They willfully come under His Lordship. And that is signified by baptism, water baptism. And so uh, it signifies as well when we look at the Scriptures, you know, the cleansing of sin, uh, being identified with Jesus Christ, just as the Israelites in the Old Testament were identified with Moses when he walked through the waters, the parted waters. That's in Hebrews. Again, cleansing, union with Christ, being identified with Him. Baptism is the replacement for circumcision. Colossians 2, Paul makes that connection there. He basically says, you were circumcised when you were baptized. And so he's talking about the fact that circumcision of the Old Testament has been replaced by baptism of the New. Just as the Passover meal has been replaced by the Lord's Supper, communion, as we sometimes call it today. And keep your finger there, because I want you to see, turn with me to John chapter 8. I want you to see this really quickly. Since we're talking about basically conversion and baptism, not that those two are exactly the same thing. I don't want you to think that. We don't believe in baptismal regeneration. That just because you have water sprinkled or poured over you, or even if you're ducked, that that washed away your sins. No, it's only the blood of Christ that washes away your sins. And just because you're baptized doesn't mean you're born again. But here's what I want to show you. In John chapter 8, beginning at verse 31, remember this is the Pharisees again. They thought they were members of the people of God, part of the kingdom of Christ, or the kingdom of God, I should say, simply because they were the physical great-grandsons of Abraham. So in John 8.31, Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you'll be made free? Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And whoever does not abide in the house forever, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Do you recognize the language there? Does that language take you back to the Old Testament? He's talking about being made free, being a slave and a servant. What was the greatest act of redemption in the Old Testament? The Exodus. And so in the New Testament, we have these cues, these clues that point us back to the spiritual significance of that whole event. That we have been slaves to sin. That he who commits sin, Jesus says, is a slave to sin. That because of our depravity, our fallenness in Adam, we are unable to change ourselves. We are fully and totally and thoroughly depraved. And so we need to be born again. We need to be released from prison, from the prison cell that is the grave. Like Lazarus was called to come forth and he came forth and Jesus raised him from the dead. Ephesians 2, we need to be raised from the dead spiritually. So what's my point? Is that when we are converted and come to the Lord Jesus Christ, that is our exodus. We are coming out of the house of bondage. 
We are being freed and released by the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we we declare that exodus. We make that profession of faith in Him. We receive the sign of baptism, which signifies the washing away of all of our sins, which is accomplished through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul can say to the Corinthian Christians, those who once were a part of their culture, a culture of sexual perversion, idolatry, and gross wickedness, he says, of such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so baptism signifies that very thing. And of course, yes, we give that sign to the children of believers. That would be another sermon. But we do administer baptism to those who make that credible profession of faith as an adult and to their children, their infant children. So as we look at what Christ commands us to do here, we have to understand that gospel telling and gospel preaching is assumed. Right? Our methodology is not Nacho Libre style. You've not been baptized. And then you go and you walk up behind someone with a bone and you baptize them. They don't understand the gospel. They've never made a profession of faith. That's not what we do. No, it's understood. Like he says in Mark 16, go and preach the gospel to whom? Every creature. That's the task of the church. And so there's going, there's baptizing, and there's teaching as well. This is the third element of this discipleship. Verse 20, teaching them. By the way, that's a Trinitarian baptism there in verse 19. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why we require Trinitarian baptism. Verse 20 is this third element of discipleship. What do we do once they come into the church? He tells us. You teach them. You feed them. Feed my sheep. That's what he said to Peter. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. So what's on the menu? The same thing every week? Well, he says here, teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you. What does it mean to observe? Check it off the box. I took note of that. Okay, Jesus taught that. Okay. No, you have to understand the biblical and Hebrew meaning for observe is to take note, bring out the big highlighter, highlight it, and put it into practice. To hear and obey. James talks about that in James 2. Faith without works is dead. It's no true faith. And so Christ here tells us what it is we are to teach. We are to teach them to observe all things that He has commanded. Not not only the fun things, not only the easy to accept things, but even those hard sayings of Jesus. He talked a lot about hell, right? And if you, you know, I was talking to someone the other day, we were talking about true love. True love does this. True love does that. Well, true love tells your neighbor if they're in danger. And if your neighbor is not a Christian, he or she is in danger of hell fire. And so we do all that Christ has taught us. That's what we are to teach, rather. And so, Jesus taught about the gospel. 
Jesus taught about money, the family, work, worship, government, even the Old Testament. He said in Matthew 5, he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, to obey it, yes. But he also says, heaven and earth won't pass away, and neither will one jot or one tittle. And so we're to be jot and tittle Christians when it comes to the Word of God. And so therefore, we are to seek to apply the Word of God to every area of life. All Scripture has been given by inspiration of God, right? So that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, since I've raised this issue, I want to ask you a question real quick. Is, are, are we to conclude that this commission here is for ordained men only. Yes and no. It is only for ordained men to preach the gospel officially. It is only for ordained men to administer the sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. However, by extension... The whole church of Christ is involved in one way or another in this great, great commission. Remember, we talked about this in the book of Acts. Uh, There is persecution in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 8, we are told the apostles, the ordained men, they stayed in Jerusalem. But the rest of the believers, they were scattered. And in Acts chapter 8 and verse 6, it says, Those who were scattered went about preaching the gospel. And so if you love your neighbor, you want them to be saved, you don't know if they're elect or not, that's not for you to decide, but your job is to preach the gospel in one way or another. Live the gospel before them. 1 Peter 3.15, have that answer ready. To be salt and light, right? And also, I love Priscilla and Aquila. The more I learn about them, the more I love them. They're the ones, they were in Rome. And there was this edict, and so all the Jewish people, they had to leave Rome, and they were Jewish, at least in part. So they had to leave Rome. They ended up in Ephesus, uh, the, or, or, or I think it was Corinth. And then the Apostle Paul, they, they met him for 18 months. This husband and wife team sat under the teaching of the Apostle Paul. And they were useful to him, and so he took them with him to Ephesus. And he left them behind at Ephesus while he went and did something else elsewhere. And so who comes into Ephesus where Priscilla and Aquila are? Apollos, a great orator, speaker, who only knew the baptism of John. And so Priscilla and Aquila taught him the way of God more accurately. Do you see how that works? The ordained man, he had a teaching ministry. Those who sat under his ministry even were teaching Another man who is a preacher? It's like cross-fertilization. I don't want to say contamination. But that's my prayer. That this goes on. We have the, the Word preached and taught officially. But we also have Sunday schools. We have people fellowshipping, just talking, discipling one another, iron sharpening iron. The older women teaching the younger women. The older men leading and teaching the younger men. And then you go out into the community and then the Word of God is hidden in your heart. It comes off your lips and you influence and are salt and light in the community. That's the way it's supposed to work. I think that's the big picture 
that we see here. And so as we go about in our callings, we teach others about the way of life, the Lord Jesus who is the way and the truth and the life. So then as we look at this, why does Providence Presbyterian Church exist? What are you guys about over there? You know, at our church, here is our mission statement. You know, I was, I was asked to come up with the mission statement and all that that's on the back of the bulletin. I'm thankful I was asked, but then again, we're not a business. But we do need to have focus. We need to know what Christ has called us to do. What are we to be about so you see what goes on? Why do we exist? If someone were to ask you right now, one sentence, tell me why you exist as a church. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Because we didn't talk about John 4 this morning. Even our form of government says the work of the church consists of three things. The work of the church in fellowship with and obedience to Christ is divine worship, mutual edification, gospel witness. Where did they get that? The Bible. Divine worship, mutual edification, gospel witness. That's what the church of Jesus Christ is to be about. And so as we think about worship, as we think about evangelism, as we think about discipleship, let me ask us all two questions. Number one, do you have a compassion for the lost? Do you have a compassion for lost people? Um, initiating salty conversations for those who are not in our tribe. Salty is taking on a different meaning today. I'm going to the biblical sense. You live in such a way, you speak in such a way that you, you help others to thirst for Jesus Christ and His righteousness. Do you initiate such conversations? You know, I mentioned that book, The Puritan Hope, earlier. Uh, Ian Murray talks about what he calls one of the greatest forgotten figures of church history in 18th century England, a man named David Bowe. And uh, this was during the rise of foreign missions, at least in Europe at that time. And this man, David Bowe, the preacher, he spoke before this missionary society. And he took for his text, Thy kingdom come. And you know, if that's his text, it's got to be a great sermon. And here's what he said in that sermon. We call ourselves the disciples of Christ, but is it owing to the coldness of the zeal of Christians for the glory of God and the salvation of their fellow creatures that in so great a part of the world the darkness of paganism envelops the people? He says, is it because of the coldness of zeal that we have? You know, Revelation 2 Jesus knocks on the door and the church at Ephesus answers and he says, Hi bride, your church calendar is busy, but you've left your first love. Go and repent. Do what you did at first and basically you'll be restored. Have we left our first love? What's the solution? Simply put, more Jesus. There's a reason the old hymn writers talked about 
turning your eyes upon Jesus. There's a reason why when Peter took his eyes off of Jesus, he sank in despair. Christ knew nothing but Christ and him, or Paul knew nothing but Christ and him crucified. His point is the supremacy of Christ in all things. And that is the solution to a cold heart, to get back into the basics of the Christian faith, never to abandon, never take your eyes off of Jesus, stay in all of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, yes, but especially the Gospels. And so be careful as we think about this great commission, let's be careful who we label our enemy. If, unless you've had your head, head in the sand or you've been protected, you will know reportedly that there are many people crossing our southern border. And we don't know who those people are. So on the one hand, we, we do have the right as citizens to be a little concerned. Who are we letting into our country? What worldview do they have? Do they hate Christians? Do they want to chop our heads off? I don't know. Others might be fleeing an oppressive government, right? So in one sense, through, I think, God's judgment, He's bringing the nations to us. And we need to be careful that it's not us and them, that we understand whether we pack our bags and fly across the country or the nations come to our doors, we are to make disciples of all nations. Remember the Apostle Paul, who was Saul, who was, before he was converted, rounding up Christians, throwing them in jail. Christ converted him on the road to Damascus, made him his disciple, made him an apostle out of due time. And then the church was saying, he is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So be careful who you label your enemies. We'll need evangelism training, no doubt. Not everyone is gifted to tell the gospel story, but we can have points of it so that we can engage in the conversation. Read your Bible, that will help. Are we baptizing babies and adults? You see, do we have a compassion for the lost? And then last, are we all growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Those of us who have been in the church for some time, maybe a little time, are we learning the commandments of Christ? Are we learning about His gospel? Are we learning how to live and apply the Word of God to every area of our lives? As parents, as husband and wife, as businessmen, whatever it might be, as students, children, are we learning and are we applying the Word of God in our lives? And when you think about this overarching big picture, it can be daunting. I know this from personal experience. But think about this. this. This commission, it was given before Facebook, before fog machines, and before the automobile. Make disciples of all the nations. And it can be daunting too because there will be resistance from unbelievers and from the enemy that will serpent the devil himself. But Christ doesn't leave us there. You know, this isn't called the, the great mission, is it? What's it called? The great commission. Why? Look at verse 20. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. That's our power. That is our strength for doing 
what Christ has called us to do. It is His presence in our everyday lives. And Lord willing, we'll talk about that next time. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for giving us clear instruction. We pray that You would help us to be a faithful church and to be a faithful church by individually being faithful church members. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.